Welcome to season two of Gray Maybe, a limited series podcast and social experiment based on this season's topic, the body. My name is Jillian Schmitz. I'm a professional dancer, actor, teacher, author, artist, and cat lover. Through my own personal journey of recovery, I've found that things aren't just black or white, or as simple as yes or no. For me, in my recovery, there has been mostly gray area and a lot of maybes. In most of my stories, you can find the gray maybe. I will be sharing my own process through personal stories, interviews, and hopefully stories from listeners in an effort to help lessen the stigma and shame of disordered eating, eating disorders, and body image. If you'd like to share your story of ED recovery on this podcast, anonymous or otherwise, please email graymaybestories at gmail.com. G-R-E-Y-M-A-Y-B-E-S-T-O-R-I-E-S at gmail.com. Before we get started, if you haven't already, please subscribe on whichever platform you're using to catch future episodes of Gray Maybe. A note before we begin. The topic of disordered eating, eating disorders, body dysmorphia, and other behavior related to the body may not be difficult for me to share anymore, but it wasn't always this way. I recognize and anticipate the possibility of judgment or disbelief about my experiences, ranging from my own family members to strangers, in addition to the potentiality of losing certain opportunities for publicizing my own experiences. My stories and the stories of others on this podcast are told through the lens of our own experience. The revelation of our process is ours to tell. If you disagree with the views or stories on this podcast, know that we are not speaking on anything other than our own experiences and viewpoints. Take what you like and leave the rest. Nothing expressed or mentioned in this podcast is an endorsement or is meant to be taken as suggestion or advice. It is strictly the sharing of our own experiences and recovery. Any feelings this podcast activates in the listener is for the listener to process and recover from. Any criticism you have based on these experiences and choices are yours, and they are not anyone else's burden to carry. Trigger warning. Eating disorders, disordered eating, anorexia, food insecurity, fat phobia, witnessing of a homicide, bullying, and racism. All right, everybody, welcome back to Gray Maybe. Thank you for coming back and listening. I'm so excited if you keep coming back and listening. It's always so, so great to see uh, that people are listening to the episode or feedback that we're getting. Today's episode is in alignment with our topic, but completely different than all of my guests I've had on so far. Uh, This person has been a very strong supporter of Gray Maybe since its inception. I've gotten a lot of very positive feedback from this guest over time and space of doing this podcast. And when I was teasing this topic for this season, uh, this guest reached out to me and gave a completely unique perspective that I never even considered. And the minute that this guest told me this, I thought immediately I have to have this person on the podcast to tell this point of view. So I want to introduce 
um, my pod friend and real life friend, Melissa Adelia Calisans. And she has letters next to her name, which I always like to see, say C-I-A-Y-T. She's going to tell me what that means. And Melissa, I realize, is one of these people that I have reconnected with recently, but I realize it, you, you have that moment where you see someone and you're like, they look so familiar. I don't know where I know them from. And then they say one thing and you're like, that's where I know you from. I know Melissa from way back when she was assisting Claude Thompson. If you don't know Claude Thompson, if you're not in the dance community, Claude Thompson is one of our most um, loved and celebrated choreographers. Um both while he was living and since he has passed, his legacy continues to live on. And Melissa was very close to him, especially towards the end of his life. And I have a very vivid memory. The minute I realized where I knew her from was taking Claude Thompson's class and she was helping lead the warm up at the bar, I believe. Um, And that could be wrong or right, but that's where I put you. And so it's been great to rekindle uh, a relationship with Melissa Adela Calisans. So without further ado, Melissa, would you welcome to the pod? And also, will you intro yourself a little more if there's anything you want to add to what I said? And also tell us what the C-I-A-Y-T stands for. Ah, thank you, Jillian. Um, well, introduction. <laughs> My name is Melissa Adelia Calisans. C-I-A-Y-T means certified with the International Association of Yoga Therapists. And uh, people who aren't familiar with a yoga, what, what a yoga therapist is and how that differs from a, just a yoga instructor, um, we can be basic and say a lot more hours, about 2,000 hours of training versus 200, 500, or 800 hours. Um, we are often um, entrusted with um, patients in the medical field and different clinical settings to help empower people um, to health and wellness through the use of very subtle tools of yoga, such as just becoming aware of their daily activities, bladder and bowel issues, and, um, you know, breath work, meditation, and just basic, basic uh, things like that. Um, So that's what the CIAYT is. That wasn't a very articulate um, introduction. I wasn't expecting to talk about that, but yay. (laughs) You're like, I didn't know I was having to give my credentials. (laughs) Well, I like people to give their credentials because... I always think it's important to link everything because I know that you've mentioned you do work with people on their pelvic floor. And I know that can be um, necessary for a lot of women and also something that a lot of women don't want to talk about or don't know how to get help for. And And so I and men. Thank you. Anybody who has a pelvis, anyone who has a pelvis, whatever gender they identify with, we all have a pelvis if we're fortunate to have that musculature and bone structure there. But everybody has a pelvic floor. And I, so you're kind of in the wellness, you're medical and wellness field. And I, and I don't want to say medical in a bad word if people think too much of Western medicine, but I know you are very much in the balance of Eastern medicine and wellness and wholeness and, um, and mindfulness and stuff like that. But I do like to say those things because what if someone's looking for someone that they need that kind of help for, because I know uh, we don't have to say where you were working, but you were employed by a very large, uh, well-known medical provider, and you are now freelance. Is that correct? Or I took some time off. I'm actually okay. not expecting myself to return to even private practice till probably okay. May. Right. I took some time off, but yes, I do work within the clinical setting, Western medicine, as well as the integrative um, Eastern philosophies, which I think is really important. You know, Western medical. Um, information is is great. Um, We need that Western diagnostic lens 
as well as, you know, I believe the the Eastern philosophies, which again, unfortunately, are being very appropriated in this day and age. Right. But um, blending them together really can help empower people to wellness. So it's, it's, it's great. The true mind-body stuff. And I won't say I only stick to the yoga um, lens or the mm-hmm. medical clinical lens. I pull from so many different aspects of mindfulness practices. So mm-hmm. I'm just mostly informed by a lot of the therapeutic yoga aspects. But bringing in things like Tai Chi, dance and movement therapy, narrative medicine, things like that, it all works with our integrative healthcare professionals. And so there's no one size fits all. And it's really exciting to at least be able to refer people out to um, really good people who understand that everybody's unique and will require something different depending on where they are at the time. I feel like that is not represented very often. And so I'm so glad you're saying that. If this is perking up anyone's ears, um, I will have Melissa's information in the show notes so that you can ask her for any further questions around that kind of stuff. But I'm glad I got all the credentials. That is not why I have you on the pod today, but I think it's important for people to know, especially since there's probably a lot of dancers and people that work with their bodies that may be listening. Um, And obviously this topic this season is about body. So the reason today, Melissa, uh, that I brought you on is because you hipped me to, and you confided in me, you had said that this was not something you had talked to with really anybody before. Uh, when I had teased the topic of the body, you had confided in me that you have very intimate experience with food insecurity. And uh, I don't know if that's a term that everybody's familiar with. We're going to dig into it. Uh, will you tell me and tell anybody who's listening, kind of sum up that conversation? Like, what did you tell me? You told me that you dealt with food insecurity, which means? Well, um, there was a time in my life as a young child when we didn't really have access to food. Um, my mother was on welfare, assisted, you know, um, financially, food stamps. This was in the 70s. And um, we sometimes had to be, um, oh, well, wow, this is hard. <laughs> okay. Um, I'll start over. <laughs> Sorry. Um Food insecurity for me um, happened around the ages of seven to nine um, when we left um, my grandmother's household. Um, My brother, my mom, and myself, um, we wound up in the housing projects in Canoga Park on um, food stamps, welfare, um, and sometimes food was not always around. And it was very challenging because it was the first time we'd ever experienced that. We had come from a a home that we had beautiful, nourishing food as younger children. And then all of a sudden we were introduced to like institutionalized cafeteria food, which Mm -hmm. we'd never seen before. Mm -hmm. And then after those two years, we wound up in Burbank and we really became aware of how different we were with food. Um, There were meal tickets for the kids that were on welfare. At school? At school, in grammar school, fourth and fifth grade. And, you know, kids would call us the, the welfare kids, you know, because... Um, once a month, the meal tickets would come for the welfare children Mm. and the homeroom teacher, well, we only stayed in one group. The teacher would pass them out and you'd have to call your name and then the kids would have to come up to get their meal tickets that would, they would use for lunch for their free meals, which Mm. again, so you had no choice if you wanted to eat, you had to get up and pick up your tickets for the month. And then all the kids and, you know, upper foothills of Burbank, California would see that we were those welfare kids. 
And you had told me in kind of some previous notes that in these circumstances, you preferred not to eat rather than for people to know that you were on these welfare tickets. Correct. It was around that time when um, instead at lunchtime, because at least at least in our first period class or that one little ca- class, the kids who there were, knew who we were, but the ones at recess and at lunchtime didn't know that we were those welfare kid ticket holders. So sometimes at lunchtime, I wouldn't even go up to get my food because you'd have to go into a specific line. Mm-hmm. And so I didn't, I wanted, because I, I was in advanced science, I was in all these really great classes and the affluent kids, the white kids, you know, were, mm-hmm. were in the regular lines for cafeteria or they had their Lunchables and their Capri Suns and this is mm-hmm. the early 80s. And so um, after a while, I just stopped going to get my lunch tickets. And I, then I stopped going to go get, you know, lunch because it was embarrassing. Right. So you're like shame starving on top of not having. Yeah. You know, it's like it's like a double assault. It's like you don't have the access to the food. And then the experience of it is so disheartening and shameful that it creates this like secondary abuse or infract. Like it's just... It's a double assault. Yeah. I mean, I didn't even know I was starving myself. I mean, I was a kid. I mean, I didn't right. know anything. I wasn't, it was kind of weird because it wasn't like hunger was a bad thing. You know, I didn't know anything different. I just didn't want to be embarrassed or that that look or the kids because kids were very cruel in those days. This was the early 80s in Burbank, Glendale adjacent where mm-hmm. people were called, you know, fresh off the boat people, the mm-hmm. boat people. I mean, I'm Mexican and we were called beaners. I mean, I excuse me for using these horrible terms, but we were called horrible things. Mm-hmm. And it was also around those those times that right after that, when I got into junior high, it got worse. That's when it got really bad, where mm-hmm. I wasn't eating at all because it was so embarrassing. You know, I was this kid who presented very white, but we lived below Glen Oaks, you know, or lived on Glen Oaks Boulevard, which for people aren't familiar with the Glendale, California area, anything above Glen Oaks was really nice. The foothills, the nice homes. And then, you know, anybody on Glen Oaks and below were the apartment dwellers, usually the housekeepers and everything else. Mm. And then a lot of people who literally came from you know, war-torn countries in those days. And um, it, it was embarrassing that, and I also didn't speak any Spanish. And mm. so that's the other thing too. When the meal tickets were handed out in those days, because all the, the grammar school, the junior high and the high school were all on the same block, you know. And um, the Mexican kids used to beat me up because they thought I was stuck up because they would talk to me in Spanish, but I didn't understand them. Mm-hmm. And so they thought I was stuck up. I what are you stuck up, bitch. So, mm-hmm. And I let them steal my meal tickets. That happened a couple of times too. So it didn't bother me. <laughs> so it was, it was like, I'm talking about it very flip now, mm-hmm. but it obviously did bother me. Mm-hmm. Um, so that was the transition and then it got even worse. So a lot of back and forth. Um, when we stayed with our grandma, when my mom was in crisis, there was always beautiful food. Then we'd go back to my mom and then there'd be no food in the house or we'd have to go to a food pantry in Burbank, like off like Verdugo and Buena Vista, which that was embarrassing. It was, I I'd never realized what it was like to have somebody look at you with pity. Mm. And when you're that age, you don't know what that feeling is. You don't right. know what embarrassment you know and shame is. It doesn't you know feel it's good. something, yeah. And, and the saddest thing was, I now in hindsight know what my mom was going through. 
Mm. And it breaks my heart Mm -hmm. because she couldn't feed her kids, Mm -hmm. you know, and and imagine what it's like for this woman who had two kids, three kids before she was 21 and one had already died and she couldn't provide for them. But she was living in this neighborhood, which my grandmother was one of those people who said, you know, always live in the best neighborhood so you have a chance for a leg up. We don't have Mm -hmm. a chance. We don't have that luxury to be lazy, Mm -hmm. crazy, fat or stupid. Um, I mentioned yes. that to you when you brought that up. And yes. it was a stigma to, first of all, be Mexican, which I am. It's like there's a lot of self-hatred growing up um, for what we are, um, but then pride that we looked um, so passing. Mm. You know, it was just really weird. So, And food was really mixed up in that. It was really strange. You had said that around this time, I believe, you can correct me if I'm on, not on the right time uh, scale here, but you had said that you learned how to blend in and you observed how food, clothing, beauty, and status were all related. Absolutely. Um, yeah. It was around seventh grade when I really became aware of like the food, the beauty, and status. Um, it was around that time that we were so lucky we had our uncles, my uncle Butch and uncle David, they were amazing. And they used to try to provide for us as much as they could, which sometimes used to cause a rift between my uncle and my mom. Mm -hmm. And I remember the first time we were taken to see an opera, my uncle took us to Pacific dining car for brunch. And we got to see what it was like to be at a silver service and linen, you know, tablecloth Mm -hmm. place Mm -hmm. in downtown and he, they taught us manners. They taught us how to be respectful. And he said, we were told, you know, like, this is, if you can dine with people, you can get somewhere in life. Because a lot of, you know, business interviews back in the day were done over meals to see where you came from. So mm-hmm. I became very aware of having proper table manners because I, you know, my pr- self-respect was a thing my grandma always talked about. And what I remember one of my uncles were so sweet to say, like, when, when in doubt, just take a moment, observe everybody else, mm-hmm. and then follow the lead of the person who's paying the bill. <laughs> you know? And so it was around that time, like 82 to 84, that when I started going to school, I started to watch the kids who had money. And um, they had the sun in, the permed hair. They looked so great. And it was so wild because the vending machines – that had apples in them were actually more expensive. Mm. And, um, but you could get the really horrible pizza for like 50 cents or a quarter. And um, the apple was like 75 cents. It was crazy. But anyway, all the beautiful girls, all the cheerleaders, all that, they would always go get the apple and a Diet Pepsi and they'd sit and they'd take forever to eat it. Hindsight, I know they were probably doing it to stay really thin because they were always talking about fitting their outfits. Where for me, I'm like, well, it doesn't look like I'm starving by taking forever to eat an apple. Mm-hmm. And so I just started to emulate those girls. And it, and by eating really slowly and stuff, I didn't feel as hungry. Mm. Um, and I also didn't have the money, so it would take me a long time to savor it. And even then, like, you've got so much discipline, Melissa. Oh, my gosh. And I was also taking ballet in those days um, and watching the way that all those girls um, ate. And, you know, I was like, this is how rich people eat. Right. This is how rich people eat, right? (laughs) So they they eat very little and they eat slowly and they left everything on their plate and they didn't take leftovers. And because, you know, oh, that's so only, you know, the leftovers is for the help. It was Mm. just, 
it's weird because now I still have those eating patterns just because it is, I love to luxuriate in food. Um, but I also, I get, I just eat really slowly and it's just a na natural habit. And it's interesting to see people nowadays, that's what they try to do because they're trying to lose weight. I'm like, what's I this now? would love to eat slowly. I can not eat slowly. And I have to say, I think is there's a couple of reasons why I can't eat slowly. Number one is because I've spent so much of my life purposely starving myself or trying to put off meals that then when I do eat, I'm, I'm so hungry. I can't get it in my stomach fast enough, which is also a feeling that a lot of alcoholics have when they want to drink, which I've also experienced is that I can't get this drug in my system fast enough right now. Um, so those two things are related for me. They feel very similar. Uh, and also growing up, and I think a lot of middle class lower middle class, middle class, higher middle class might relate to this thing was growing up, it was finish all the food on your plate. There are starving kids in Africa. Uh, <laughs> that was that was the that sometimes I think it was China too. some some families said China, my family, I think might have said Africa. And the funny thing is, is there's so much funny about that. Number one, it's like by you eating all of your food, you're somehow contributing or not to someone else's starvation. Uh, it's just a terrible message in general to eat past when you're full, because I do believe it confuses your mind, body, emotional, hormonal, you know, relationship with food. Uh, also, I still finish everything on my plate, even if I'm full, and it's not a great habit to be in, because then I'm uncomfortable. And I don't know how to plate my food correctly for how much I'm eating. That's a whole other thing. But this, this, uh, don't you finish all your food, there's starving kids in Africa. Well, meanwhile, there's starving Melissa as well, in like our country, but that was never considered for some reason, you know, like, I think the uh, food insecurity narrative is a, even a little bit more at the forefront nowadays than it even was then. It was I feel like growing up, in the 80s, I'm a little bit behind you on the timeline, but it very much was like, that's something other countries have a hard time with. There's no one who has food insecurity here when that couldn't be further from the truth, right? Of course, there are people with food security here. There's still people with food security insecurity here. Um, but it's, it's interesting that slow, the opposition that you and I have, I really relate to your observation of food, clothing, beauty, and status and how they're all related. Um, I also like, you know, the 90s, all of the heroin chic stuff that was became very popular. Uh, that all said something, right? It said something about status and thinness, being rich, being, you know, powerful, being the epitome of femininity. All of these things kind of rolled into one and it's super confusing regardless of if you don't have it or if you want to be it. It's It's confusing and I couldn't I could I could never articulate it that way. But when you said in your memo to me uh, that you observed how food, clothing, beauty and status and how they were all related, I was like, had a little light bulb moment. I was like, oh, my gosh, that's so poignant. I relate to that so much, especially in that that time and still now even. Right. It's the celebrities that have their own chefs and their own personal trainers and their own, th you know, all these things that are a marker of of affluence. Uh, those are the people that get to be healthy or that there's still this idea that if you're thin, you're healthy, which also couldn't be further from the truth unless and you are, you know, intimately know that person. It's wild um, because people believe, again, you've got the status, people, the rich, beautiful people. You've got 
the you know the people who are food insecure and they automatically think it's just the welfare people who are really below but especially in this day and age people can have a home people can have cars people can look just fine but they nobody would understand that they are experienced food insecurity and you know in back in those days food stamps were like these big bills like like oversized monopoly money like billboards just yeah giant. like this like, look big. here look and at this you, shameful situation and you had to sign them like checks and people would sit there like this in line i remember as a kid you know my mom paying at trader joe's she always wanted to feed us really good food and you know trader joe's was an amazing place in encino in the 70s but i remember seeing people getting really mad and literally tapping just their feet huffing and, How you know, dare you? And they were like dollar bill ones, five dollar ones, twenty, and you have to sign each each one individually, and so it would take a long time. And I just could see, and sometimes the food wouldn't add up, and certain things weren't covered, and it was so embarrassing for my mom, for us, and you know she's got these kids, trust you know bored, and I can't even imagine the humiliation my mother was going through. Do you think that, that that's the point? Do you think a little bit that that some of that is the point or was the point? I don't know how it is done nowadays, but like, do you think that that might've been part of the point? Like if you're going to get this thing, what we call for lack of a better word, a terrible word, a handout, right? If you're going to get a handout, you have to pay somehow. And it's going to be in your, and you know, you're going to, you're going to pay by shame. Well, because you wouldn't believe how many people say, well, those people should be so grateful. I mean, you'd hear people saying those lazy people who just sit on their ass. Yeah. You know, and they're and they're getting welfare and my tax paying dollars are doing this. And it's like, wait a second, there was always this problem because you would just make enough money. And like my mom, we stayed at home for two years by ourselves. We were by ourselves during the 79 earthquake because mm-hmm. she couldn't afford daycare. Mm-hmm. But she had to work. But if she had worked enough more, she would then lose her food stamps benefit. So mm-hmm. there was always that issue. And I don't think it's probably changed much now. But what I was gonna say about you know, the two different polarities of like, you know, lower income and what, what we also have is, you know, you've got this middle class income that people don't know about. And what the thing is, the only reason they don't know that there's so much food insecurity with people who look just fine is that people do research and, you know, they track people in low economic, low, you know, socioeconomic, you know, what I'm so not articulate right now. Um, you know, demographics, and then they could get funding for that. And then any other research is done by somebody else's endowment. So you got the money people, the people mm-hmm. in between are not being researched usually because they're working too much. They don't mm-hmm. have time. Mm-hmm. And so it's like, nobody's really paying attention to the people who really are on the fringe or on, right. I mean, on the edges of these things. And so I, you know, I, I spent many of my years, like coming into the dancing years that we'll probably talk about, mm-hmm. the heroin chic years, those years, it's like, again, people would praise me for being thin mm-hmm. and like, oh my God, you have so much discipline. <laughs> and mm-hmm. I was starving during my scholarship years, literally mm-hmm. starving. And I didn't realize that literally until the last three months mm-hmm. when I started to unpack my food eating habits, mm-hmm. which when you brought up addiction or any other disordered eating, you know, probably from a clinical lens, I probably do have tendencies for what would be considered disordered eating. And I usually hate the word disorder or dysfunction mm-hmm. because right. it's such a, they're such stigmatizing words where it's like, okay, they're not ideal eating patterns from what my body requires. Mm-hmm. But 
when people talk about addiction, you mentioned in your last episode that usually people kind of revert to who they were when mm-hmm. the addiction happened. Right. Well, when, when they you hear- found their their thing to numb out. Yeah. When they found yeah. Their thing. And when you think about ACEs, the adverse childhood experiences, mm-hmm. when somebody's experiencing those, it's like what happens when you are in a space of crisis as an adult? I did realize I reverted back to those days of insecurity, trauma, mm-hmm. um, sadness, you know, and loss. Because what I was going through the last few months, or even two years ago, I had never been in that much of a crisis since I was a child. Mm-hmm. So all of a sudden, I I lost so much weight so fast because of something I had witnessed, and we could talk about it if you want to, that um, I didn't realize I wasn't eating. Mm-hmm. You know, because I was by myself at home because it was the pandemic mm-hmm. and my husband mm-hmm. was working and all of a sudden I saw myself on video and I looked so skinny and I don't weigh myself and I actually went to find the scale and I went like, I lost like 12 pounds in three weeks. Mm-hmm. And I realized because that, whoa, I reverted back to, well, I was traumatized and that's a natural physiological thing. People mm-hmm. usually lose their appetite. Right. But I had also started to think, you know, with what I had witnessed, I'd witnessed the murder of my neighbor and I couldn't help him. Mm. That, and hearing so many people like, why didn't you do anything or what did you do? I was feeling like I suck. I'm that person again. Mm-hmm. I probably didn't think I deserved to eat because I was still alive. And unpacking that was really interesting over the last few, few years, two years. And then again, when my brother started to die, it's like, whoa. You mentioned this in your um, in your memo to me, and I really highlighted it. I really fixated it on it because you talk about, you know, the relationship between feeling unworthy and not eating, I think, is so important. And I think that the shame that comes with food insecurity, not being worthy of whatever all of that is, and not eating, and also from someone who suffers from eating disorders, disordered eating, that kind of stuff there is so much of an underlying not good enough feeling unworthy. And I can tell you every time I skipped a meal, I felt righteous. And for me to, yes, I felt righteous. I felt like I did it. I did it. I'm so good. Look at, look at how much self-control I have. Look at how, how good I am. And, and the flip side of that is what? Look how bad I am. Look how out of control I am. Look how, you know, and the idea of, if food, you had talked a little bit about the that food was very much how you and your brother had related to each other and showed each other love. And that connection of food and love, if you think of food and love in general, right? If you don't love, then is there no food, right? So the like the flip side of all this of like not being able to love yourself enough to nourish yourself. That's what I took away from it. And that's what I related to because- there was no one who hated me more than I hated myself. Wow. You know, there was no one who could say the things. And I know um, Catherine Tokert Dyson said the same thing. I, she, she mentioned, I'm paraphrasing in her episode, that as far as taking critique in this profession, no one could be as mean as she could be to herself. You know, and that is, it's usually a pretty, uh, pretty standard symptom of this kind of dis-ease or this type of dysfunction, um, which again, aren't the greatest words, but 
you know, not meeting your energy requirements or overly eating your energy requirements because of some kind of, um, you know, unhappiness or not able to process certain feelings. So I thought that this you losing weight in these moments of severe trauma um, and not feeling worthy enough to eat, like survivor's guilt, what what a more, you know. And it wasn't even deliberate. It wasn't even, I wasn't even aware of that. Right. Um, I mean, actually, because I, let's be honest, I was pretty much catatonic at that time. I mean, uh-huh. imagine witnessing a brutal murder of your neighbor in front of your house. I was really brain scrambled, wow. but it wasn't obviously intentional. I was never, I was never denying myself deliberately food, but I'm fortunate that from my background, not only as a yoga therapist, but as a personal trainer, as someone who's studied nutrition for athletic performance and all these things. When I was working with clients um, privately back in the day when I had my business up in Glendale, um, and this is why I think it's so important that people from different areas of maybe um, disordered eating should discuss this because it can create a totally different lens of self-compassion as well as compassion towards others is that I'd have, I'd have these beautiful women coming to me and trusting me with their deepest, darkest secrets about their body image, about their, because I dealt with a lot of entertainers also, elite athletes, dancers, and, and just everyday business people who were housewives for a while. And they hearing the way they talk about their bodies broke my heart. And I was so able to tell them, I'm like, don't you realize that soft, beautiful belly, first of all, is a testament that you have food. And I I didn't realize this until unpacking this over the last two years that I had wished that I had food, you know, in those days. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And that was probably there. But for them to also come back to me and say, if it hadn't been for you telling me those things, I wouldn't Mm -hmm. have learned to have loved myself in those days. Mm -hmm. And I'm so fortunate that I've had my experiences and that I've had decades of self-reflection that Mm -hmm. is going to be ongoing because I just realized these other things, like you said, my brother's. And my love language, mm-hmm. not just with each other, but with our significant others. But hearing people who, again, were upset about their tummy, which, again, they looked amazing. And then there were the people who were, I'm too scrawny. People say, I don't have an ass. And mm-hmm. somebody obviously had told them things mm-hmm. that stuck with them. Mm-hmm. And I was very good at helping others find self-acceptance, never realizing that I probably needed to do that mm-hmm. work myself. And it wasn't until the pandemic that I actually had some time to breathe mm-hmm. and actually nurture myself the way I have nurtured my clients over the last decades. And then hearing your podcast, bringing so many other things up that maybe some of the things I don't have firsthand experience for myself personally. Mm-hmm. But there's so many parallels with everybody else's trauma and my own. And eating disorders or disordered eating patterns I don't think there's one person in Western society um, that hasn't experienced some sort of strange relationship with how they eat food. I know people who eat really fast because they said they had siblings who'd always eat everything yes. faster. Yes, yeah. And it's funny because when I go out to dine with my husband and a few of my friends, they always say, order Melissa's food first because she's going to be here for a while. Right. And, and at least when I'm eating is when I shut up and I listen to everybody. Mm-hmm. I love that. But anyway, sorry, I'm getting on tangents. With no, you, but you know, and also, you know, the crazy thing is, is how things present the same but are completely different is your uh, learned behavior of eating really slow that has not changed throughout your life is also a, a lot of anorexics do that. 
they eat so slow so that people see them eating, but they're not really eating a ton. Mm -hmm. And they kind of push the food around and they kind of like take little bites and they kind of play this little game. So it's so funny because both of those symptoms, it's not funny. That's a terrible word to say, but it's, they present the same and they are from two separate sides of the spectrum, which I think is just interesting in general. Um, You mentioned, well, there's, I, I, there's something I want to go back to that I think helps share this um, in talking about food insecurity, but also just how you kind of mentioned a, a, a little bit ago how it basically is so hard to get ahead, right? So if your mom made a little bit more money, it would take away the help that you desperately needed. And then, you know, she couldn't afford childcare. So you and your brother are alone. You know, there's like this um, kind of this, uh, this game you can't win, right? This kind of moving of goalposts that kind of happens when you are in poverty or just trying to get out of poverty. And there is a series that I think showcases this really, really well for those people who might be listening and interested. It's a show called Made. And, oh. um, right? And the book so, was amazing. <laughs> book okay, was there's amazing. a book too. I didn't even know. That shows you how much yeah, I, I know about things. Yeah, I read the book years ago and I couldn't actually watch the movie because it was too triggering. I started yeah, to watch I mean, it, or the series. I started to watch it and I just couldn't get through it because it was brought too many memories up. It's completely captivating. I don't have that same experience, but I really related to so many things that happened to her. And I, the, the feeling of it, of, of feeling like every time you think you might be able to get one foot on a stair, it just gets, it turns into 10 more stairs. And I think they did a really good job showing mm-hmm. that system. Now, yes, it's a young white woman. Yes, it's like, you know, kind of not as, uh, re- uh, reflective of community as a whole and like there's already some privilege in being white period across the across the table um but i do think it it showed that system or how systematically poverty is to keep people in poverty and it's almost impossible to break out of uh so if anyone's interested i'll put that in the show notes there's one last thing i want to say about that that I have not been necessarily food insecure. There have been times in my younger life where I really didn't have a lot of money for food. Um, I also didn't like to uh, spend money on food. There is a term for that in eating disorders. It's called being money-rexic. It's where you're using not wanting to spend money on food or not having money for food as a way to not eat. That is, it, it could be conscious or unconscious, but it is there. I did do that a lot. One of the things that uh, I noticed most in my recovery was how much more money I had to spend to eat and how much of a burden I felt like that was because I was not used to having to do that. Um, also, that your teeth get more things on them. That's another thing I noticed. Uh, that in the past, I was obviously doing dental hygiene, but like I didn't realize that by the end of the day, you would feel like maybe you needed to brush your teeth again because I was so not used to eating for long periods of time that that was something I noticed, a weird little tidbit in recovery that you noticed. But one of the things um, that I don't experience much anymore, and this is completely from a place of privilege, of, of monetary privilege, of being able to support myself better is that I don't have to add up every item in my food cart with the tax and overestimate by the time I get up to the line to check out. So this is something that 
I was very used to doing, especially in my 20s, was looking in my cart, seeing everything I had, knowing the prices of everything and overestimating for the tax so that I had enough money when I went to check out and that I didn't have to put anything back. And I realized that I had made it when I didn't have to do that anymore, where I could just buy the things I wanted to buy within reason. I'm not a crazy, you know, let's do lobster and, you know, steak every night. But like, I, you know, to not have to do those types of mathematics to know that whatever I'm going to put through this line right now or check out that I can cover it was a very big transformative um, experience for me. Uh, so I don't, I, I know that I've heard other people have kind of gone through that as well, who often don't have a lot of money for food. And I do remember that being a circumstance. So I did want to bring that up because I do think that that's a major difference between people who have enough and people who don't. I totally am blown away by you bringing this up because, um, if you don't mind me talking about that, no, please. um, going back to again, awareness conversations and how important they are and how hearing somebody's story like that. And then I will share one about one of my friends because I used to have such anger towards people who were wasting their food. And these were the, my friends in the dance world when we were young. And I'm like, who could, excuse my language, like, who could fucking afford to be bulimic? I get so right. mad. I'm like, how can you waste that fucking food? I never would say that, but I'd be saying that in my head so mad. And then years later, one of my friends wound up sharing with me why she was in debt. And I'm like, how can you be in debt? You've been doing this amazing show for so long. And she's like, I puked up all of my money. I'm like, what? She's like, what do you mean? You throw up too? I'm like, no, I don't. Like, because I, like, I, I, I hate throwing up because I used to have bronchitis all the time as a kid. And it used to force me to throw up and it was the grossest thing in the world to me. Mm. And that was another thing too. I'm like, why would anybody throw up? It seems so disgusting. And mm -hmm. I used to have such anger or grossness. Or, and I'm talking from my you know, young teen and 20 brain right now. Mm -hmm. And then when she shared that to me, first of all, what bravery it took for her to say, well, I puked all my money away. Mm -hmm. and, I, and when she told me, she's like, oh yeah, I would go out after a show and do this and I'd make most money she had ever had and she'd get quarts of ice cream. And she said it became a problem when her roommate would find these empty containers underneath her bed and she wound up going to treatment. And I was like, whoa, this is truly a problem. And I, I didn't know about the medical awareness of this stuff. I was a teenager in early mm -hmm. 20s. And it wasn't until, of all things, I was doing, you know, wilderness first responder EMT courses when we were, you know, it was through Knowles National Outdoor Leadership School. And they were talking about observing everybody's patterns of eating because mm -hmm. that can lead to problems in the wilderness. Mm -hmm. And a lot of people who take these courses are going to be taking care of kids in those camps for, you know, behavioral issues. And there was a whole topic, you know, a whole module on eating disorders. And that was the first time I got to learn from an academic lens about eating disorders. And I, this was 2001, so this is 20-some years ago. And that was the first time I started to realize nobody asks to have an eating disorder. Nobody chooses mm -hmm. to have an eating disorder. It's usually a symptom of something else. Mm -hmm. And I was like, ooh, I've been such a dick in my head to people, you know, for all this time. And then that also helped inform me when I was working with clients to always go, I'm never going to speak on anything that people are eating, except mm -hmm. for like, let's just think of nutrition first. And when mm -hmm. I heard you and um, Kim Hale talking about that in your last episode, I was like, mm -hmm. I've always thought nutrients first because I fortunately in the dance world, my mentors who introduced me to Claude Thompson, they were the ones who introduced me to Ayurveda. 
um, and yoga from a therapeutic lens in 1990, when they said, you know, you're not going to have money for health insurance if you're a dancer. You need to take care of yourself because mm -hmm. that's your health insurance. And said, you'll notice your nutrition, notice your habits, notice these things, take care of your body. And if that seed hadn't been planted from a healthy space, a preventative medicine space, I probably could have gone down different rabbit holes of disordered eating in those days. Mm -hmm. So um, it all comes back to these conversations are so valuable so we can have more respect and compassion to all of our fellow human beings mm -hmm. if they are having eating patterns that don't align with what you think is ideal or normal mm -hmm. and how to bring up those conversations. So thank you for sharing that thing about the budget because I'm like, I'm thinking you're just being fiscally responsible, <laughs> like, you know, and I'm like, wow, she's really good with her budget. Just like yeah. people used to say, you're so disciplined, you are so thin, you're a great right. dancer because you look phenomenal. Right. Yeah. I could not <laughs> handle the absolute uh, shame of having to put something back and holding up the line and doing the whole thing like that. I just couldn't, I couldn't tolerate it. And so and was so, your shame from your eating disorder shame, where for me, it would have been from not being able to pay for it. Just no, it was from money. not being, it was from not being able to pay for it. Like in my twenties, there were many points in time where I didn't have a ton of money oh. when I was on scholarship. So I was adding things up to the dollar because if I didn't, and if I didn't add it up right, like I've, was Wait, not so that gonna be was able your to... scholarship journey too? It was a bit of my scholarship journey. It was also on and off throughout <laughs> my 20s of not having, you know, the amount of food or like one unexpected expense, you mm -hmm. know, takes away from your food budget. So now it's dollar store. And even at the dollar store, you got to make sure you're, you know, how much, how much dollars do you have for food? It's $10. Okay. So 10 things, but then there's tax. So it's really nine things. You got to make sure that that's really a dollar and like, or just even if you're at the regular grocery store, how much taxes? You know so what our food hack was? Our food hack on Mondays for Marguerite, Marguerite Derrick's Monday Margarita Nights, we'd actually go to Acapulco Buffet on Mondays before Marguerite's class. And then, got it. She's never going to ever. <laughs> she hopefully doesn't remember me anyway because I was terrible in her class. Like, I, whatever. But we are. Was, uh, hold up. Hold. <laughs> we are all terrible in Marguerite's class. Marguerite's class is the thing that unites us. It is terribly humbling for us all. And, you know, she knows it. But oh, can I go off on a, a random tangent? Go for it. When we had our scholarship reunion in 2016, no one wanted to go to Marguerite's class because she was teaching, Chris Dupre was teaching, Liz Imperio was teaching, Doug, we got to teach right before he passed. They were afraid. We all were afraid. And like were we were afraid. talking on the phone and my friend Jennifer, who I'm going to talk, talk about our food hack before Marguerite's class, she's like, I'm not going. That, that class traumatized me. I'm like, you know what? And I said it out loud. I'm like, you know what? My livelihood doesn't depend on this shit anymore. I'm just going to go. And if I flub it up, I flub it up and screw it. And then she shared the most amazing story with us that day. Mm -hmm. Like it made us all cry. And we forget that these people we put on pedestals when we were students, they were not that much older than we were. Mm -hmm. And they were going through their own shit too. And she mm -hmm. shared such incredible stuff with us too. And she was just like, you guys, if you want to mark a turn, mark a turn. And it was the greatest freaking class I took ever. It's true. And she's still <laughs> like that. She likes to see a lot of different types of bodies do her work. She likes to see a lot of different ages. Like she gets really excited when she sees diversity on every on every facet. She very much likes that. That is very much core to her being. Uh, so I'm glad you went and, and did it. But so it what, was what was your oh, so the food. Your, so the food hack? Well, because the Acapulco, like on Buena Vista and Pass, like in very... It, on Monday nights, they'd have their happy hour. And as long as you were buying margaritas, which were a dollar, you got to eat the free buffet. 
Mm. And we didn't really want to drink before Marguerite's class, you know, because mm. sometimes we'd be like, well, we're going to suck anyway, might as well. But um, we'd pay the $1 for the margarita and then just, we would just chow. Oh, and that's also, ahead. we'd have these big bellies going into the class, which of course, a big belly at 102 pounds at five foot two, you know, whatever. But um, that's how we ate. And mm. it's sad that like, Alcohol had to be involved with that, too, to eat right, for free. Right, And then afterwards, on Monday nights and Wednesday nights, El Compadre. My friend Jennifer and I would go to El Compadre and order one flaming margarita at the bar because they'd give you the free chips and salsas the whole night long. And then some random guy would start chatting us up. And we didn't really want to drink much because we, since we were pretty much malnourished, we didn't want to get fucked up and we had to drive. Mm-hmm. But we'd always like, can you just order us a side of guacamole and some beans? And the guys would joke, oh, you're a cheap date. But we would literally get these big guacamole and beans. And that would that's how we would eat. Mm-hmm. And because we always thought we need nutrient-dense food and lots of protein. So we lived off mm-hmm. avocados and beans and margaritas on scholarship, which nice. is so sad. But it, we were able to afford it. Mm-hmm. And yeah, that's, oh, God. <laughs> these memories speaking, of Speaking of dance, I'm going to oh. rewind. When you were growing up, it seemed like dance was used uh, kind of like a weapon of control with your between your mom and your uncle, and then food was kind of a weapon of control between your grandma and your mom. Well, again, I can't speak on this because they're no longer with us. Um, on their, I can't really. I, I can only assume, and this is just what I'm seeing. I won't really, like, really say that it was a deliberate weapon. Mm-hmm. It was a power struggle. I'm sure. Again, it goes back to pride, embarrassment, whatever, because. Looking back to where my mom was, I know my uncle only wanted to help my mom. I mean, I'm still very close to my uncle. I love him so much. And the crazy thing is, I'm older than he, I'm older than he was in those days. Mm. Then like at now at my age, I'm older than he was. And here he was trying to support my mom and her two kids in any way. But she saw it as he's just trying to control me. Or he's shoving it in my face that I can't take care of myself or that I've made bad decisions. So when he'd pay for ballet, it probably felt like a dig at her that she can't afford it. So sometimes when they'd get in fights, she would get mad at like, you're not going to go to ballet because your uncle's just trying to pay pay for your love. Mm. And then, you know, with my grandma too, with food, that was the thing, you know, you only, she would say, you kids only go where your bread is buttered. Because we'd be like, can we just go see grandma? And it's like, we were freaking hungry. We're eating freaking ketchup out of the bottle. You know? She said, she really said you only go where your bread is yeah. butter. You're like, yes, ma'am. Yeah. I would love some bread and butter. Thank you. You know, you, you kids are so hateful. You're just, you know, mm. good for nothing. You know, you know, mm. you're just, un- you know, it was so sad. But one minute she's wishing she were dead and all this stuff. Next minute she's telling us, you know, you, you kids are ungrateful. And, you know, my grandma would like leave the key under the mat because we wound up living next door to my grandma even. And then they would get in these fights and then we weren't allowed to go see my grandma. But we'd see my grandma leaving for work in the morning and she'd see us at the window and she'd like motion to the key. And then before my mom would, if my mom was passed out somewhere or whatever, my brother and I would have to sneak out, sneak to my grandma's, go through the back door. They get the ramen that she'd leave for us or she'd leave, you know, macaroni salad in the fridge and she'd always leave food for us. Mm. And but we had to sneak out to get it. I mean, how fucked up is that? (laughs) And I was just talking to my cousin Jennifer about this last night. She'd never heard these stories, but I was telling her, because I knew I was going to talk about this. She doesn't know I'm doing this podcast, but I'm like, I don't give a shit anymore who knows anything. My brother just fucking died. My mom Mm -hmm. is dead. 
it's going to all end with me. Secrets cause problems. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we'd go to our family and stay with them in Manhattan Beach in the 70s. And my brother and I would literally eat everything in their house. Oh, you and your brother ate everything. You know, and still to this day, oh, yeah, your brother could always eat everything. Well, nobody knew that we were fucking starving. Right. And I told that to my cousin Jennifer last night. She's like, are you fucking kidding me? Would you expect, ever expect me to cuss this much? <laughs> I um, quite love it, especially because <laughs> you have such a very, like, very feminine, very sweet, very kind voice. I like the juxtaposition. Go on. And again, guess what? Just because you're a yoga therapist doesn't mean you're not human. Um, Thank you. Because, and I'm also speaking from those years. Like, I'm talking mm-hmm. from that person who was alive in those days living this. And so telling my cousin this, and she's like, I had no clue. Nobody would have known. Because again, we presented like everything was fine. Right. My grandmother, this was her um, survival mechanism. Because again, she she came here as a teenager from Mexico when, again, you were the lowest life of the world. And so she, her thing was have some self-respect. Never take a handout. Don't be a charity case. You know, we're, I'm raising you in in Encino and Glendale, so you have options. You blend in, and don't let anybody know that you're a pauper. Those were her, you know, those are the type of words she used with the language of it. And so it's like, don't let anybody know. Don't and let you anybody don't know. have the luxury of being crazy, fat, lazy, or stupid. Mm-hmm. Because they're going to see your last name, and they're going to already have something against you. And that's true because I even know, like, when I had to, I when I had my Gutierrez as my maiden name. When people would see Gutierrez and I'd show up, they're like, oh, I, I didn't realize. Wait, are you married? And even mm-hmm. in the dance world, I would show up during the 90s when it was all the Christine Aguilera dirty stuff. And I'd be sent out for the Latina calls and I'd get there. And they're like, it's not polite to crash auditions. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, this is a Latina call. And they're like, you're not. I'm like, And they were like, speak Spanish. And you're like, I can't. <laughs> yet, yet, yet I was able to get cast on Telemundo shows. Like they loved that. They, they loved the Spaniard right, the variety, white look. Exactly. Right. Well, they also, they, a lot of, again, it goes back to, there was a lot of racism in my grandmother's generation of their own kind. Mm-hmm. You know, the lighter you are, the better you are. And again, again, lighter affluence. Right. It's, it's all that stuff. So, Right. And we see boy, that oh in the black community <laughs> talks about that. The Chinese community talks about that. My husband, he's Filipino, and they, you know, again, they weren't allowed to speak, you know, Tagalog in their family. We weren't allowed to speak Spanish in our family, mm. you know, so not, a, not not allowed. I mean, when we were all home together, but my grandma was like, you know, grammar is really important. Being articulate, being this, those were the words, you know, be articulate, have some self-respect. Mm. So, <laughs> you, I'm packing you, a lot of random things here. <laughs> no, I like it. You you started this, conver- this bit of conversation talking about keeping secrets that is going to end with you. And I very much feel like I'm in that chapter of my life as well, um, where I just am not keeping any secrets, uh, certainly not other people's secrets, but, you know, not even my own. And there is a recovery phrase that says you're only as sick as your secrets. And uh, that one always hits so home, right? (laughs) You're only as sick as your secrets. Um, And I do find that people who struggle with eating disorders are so so very secretive. Uh, this particular disease thrives in secrecy. All addiction does, but really this one I do find is so, so secretive. You had shared with me that you and your brother 
were praised when you were growing up by your friends' parents um, for your willingness to try anything and and being such good eaters. You know, they're sitting here and they've got these these kids that won't eat their food or, you know, aren't. And you guys are getting praised because they didn't know you guys were starving. I'm going to get a little emotional if that's okay. Of course. (laughs) Um, Because I'm having these amazing memories. Um, Because there's some beautiful stuff in this too. Um, Mm -hmm. Again, there were a lot of people who had come from war-torn countries. Um, Mm -hmm. At the time, we had friends who were from Syria, from the Philippines, from Vietnam. And and even with our grandma, like, you don't ever want anybody to know that you don't have food. Mm -hmm. And that was kind of funny, too, because we see this in a lot of our friends talk about this, like, you didn't go to slumber parties. Mm -hmm. Because... People from these war-torn countries, your kids stayed at somebody's house because you no longer had a home or couldn't afford it. So mm-hmm. by letting your kids stay at somebody else's house means you can't feed them. So oh, a wow. lot of our – nobody had f- sleepovers except for our rich white friends. It was kind of funny. They're like, why would you ever need to send your child to someone else's home? What's wrong with you? Do you not have a home? Are you on downtime? Totally. And they're like – no, it's a slumber party. <laughs> Yet you would never see more generosity in a home. Like if you guys had to study at somebody's house, the mm-hmm. family would go all out with these amazing meals. And I remember being in some of our um, Syrian friends' houses. I had never seen food so pretty in my life. Mm-hmm. And that was one thing that my grandmother always said. If you are ever invited to somebody's home, especially somebody from another country, you eat anything they give you because that's probably all their food, but they're going to still share it with you because they know what it's like to not have it. Mm-hmm. And because my grandma came from that too. Mm-hmm. And so, and you know, always have manners, never take more than what's given, you know, all that stuff, which you hear people talk about nowadays with all their mindfulness practices. Mm-hmm. But um, the people who came from probably food insecure countries were the most generous. Yet there was so much reverence for the food that it wasn't uncomfortable. But when we'd go to some of our affluent friends' family, literally food was unsupervised. Um, a lot of people weren't having meals, but there were pantries just mm-hmm. crammed full of food. Mm-hmm. And so when my brother and I would go to certain people's houses, you know, parents would be like, oh, just help yourself. I remember my friend Sean, I loved going to his house because they had ding-dongs and zingers and, you know, that food was expensive, right? Mm-hmm. And it was very trendy, right? So you're oh, seeing- yeah. You're seeing these things advertised on TV. You're like, those are the cool kid things. Those look so delicious. And I mean, again, if he ever hears this, he probably he might hear this someday. So he he'll remember this because we would sit, we'd watch Magilla Gorilla after swimming, and he'd just keep bringing me ding dongs after ding dongs, and I would eat like twelve ding dongs. And you know, my brother would be at somebody else's house, and they're like, your brother always had a way of showing up right at dinner time. And and this is where I'm gonna get emotional because of my brother's celebration of life everybody talked about my brother's bouginess with food and everything and it was while my brother was dying that all these conversations about how my brother spent so much money on food and took people out to the most extravagant meals and he was so generous with things like that is when talking to his fiance she's like why do you guys are like this and I didn't realize until having these conversations with her that we were both a product of the same upbringing Mm -hmm. and we presented in different ways but food was truly our love language because we would go over to people's houses and they would be like your brother has the best appetite oh your kids are so polite you know to my grandma because we were always really grateful well because we were hungry but they didn't really realize that's why but also the food was really good our friends had some really good (laughs) good food but it's heartbreaking because um you know my my 
brother was kind of made fun of a lot, even as an adult, for like, God, your brother really spends a lot of money on food and he only goes to the bougiest places. Mm-hmm. But it's and because he... It makes sense. Yeah, it does. It makes sense. You grow up not being able to afford, once you have the money, you're going to go ham. You're going to go ham. And I wouldn't, you know, I wonder sometimes with people that are presenting with hoarding, the inability to throw away food that has gone bad, the inability to waste any kind of food at all, like, which I I have a tendency to do this kind of stuff too. I have a tendency to not um, want to throw away food, even if it has probably almost gone bad. Like the minute it's bad, I'm throwing it away, but I don't like to waste food. And I'm someone who has never, has has spent a good deal of their life trying not to eat. So I don't know what that is. It's very weird. It's very complicated. I think that also comes from like like growing up in a middle-class household, we didn't never have enough, but there was always this pending. We don't, we could not, we're just one situation away from not having enough, or we can't afford that brand, but we can afford this brand, or we can't have cable this month, which is like, oh no, not cable. But there was always these conversations of like, look, we're fine, but like also we're just on the cusp. Like we definitely, you know, and my parents had a really nice big house and they had nice cars and, you know, we never did the welfare of anything, any kind of thing like that, never had those types of moments, but there was always this consistent, oh man, you know, are we going to make it? Oh, we can't afford that. We can't afford this. We can't afford that. That was always a conversation. Uh, but we always did have enough. But even in my, you know, scholarship days and into my early 20s of being on my own, there was, you know, it was hard to get by, you know, and there was a lot of things I couldn't afford. And, uh, you know, I, I, there are things now that I will buy and it is like I can afford it, you know. And I wonder that amped up, right? Had I been in a different circumstance growing up, would I not be doing things more like your brother? Would I not be buying excess of food and eating it just because I can, just because I didn't have it, you know, just because to 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 show that kind of contr- having control now that I didn't have as a child, right? Because so often as kids, we don't have control and that's what we're seeking so much of, you know, just even a little bit of control. You've said something really important, like when you were talking about the the what do you say the money moneyrexia or what was it? Yeah, yeah moneyrexia. Yeah, um, and it just brought up a light bulb in my head about how sometimes when people are so used to chaos or trauma or fear or insecurity that even when they become secure, they almost create that you know scarcity mindset again. Mm-hmm. Because I'm thinking back to um, when you said you you realized you didn't have to count anymore. While I was on scholarship, at one point, I wound up getting a different job, and I had some money. Mm-hmm. And I finally, like, again, I, 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 again, I realized in the last few months that I was similar to my brother in that respect, that when I wound up with a chunk of change, I went all out. And so every Friday, I don't know if you knew about Sushi Nazawa. It was like mm-hmm. a really swanky sushi place. Um, if you know about sugarfish nowadays, there's yes. just... So Nazawa created Sugarfish. So he had a place on um, on Ventura Boulevard and like Lancashire-ish area in, in Studio City. And it was like this, what they called the sushi Nazi in those days. Excuse that word. But um, it was expensive in those days. Like sometimes, you know, 60 bucks at lunchtime mm-hmm. in like 1995, 96. Right, which is like $300, $400 now, <laughs> I feel like. That would but be on the Fridays, inflation rate. 
you know, on Fridays, that's where I would go by myself. I'd go to Sally Whalen's ballet class in the morning. Sally Whalen. <laughs> she was my life. Oh, um, now that's going to bring back some memories for some people. Go ahead. So I, after Sally's ballet class, I would go to Nazawa and then I'd go do this fun job for 11. Like that was my thing. Like I knew how to work hard for one whole day so I can just dance every other day of the week. So because I knew I was going to be bringing home a, a chunk of change. So um, I'd go to Nazawa once a week and like, instead of like saving the $65 to pay my bills, I was thinking kind of like, well, I wouldn't have had this anyway, mm. but it was almost like paying my, it was almost like penance or, or what do you call it? Alms for the poor mm-hmm. <laughs> that, you know, I'm going to go do this really crazy job. Mm-hmm. Um, I deserve this. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, f- I would celebrate with really extravagant meals, even in those days, once I finally started to make some money. Right. But it kind of kept me back to that place where I was because I think I was probably used to being, you know, in those precarious situations. I'm just realizing that right now that I'm no different than my brother with when it comes to those extravagant splurges. And I mm-hmm. still kind of do that now. Um, it's it's kind of wild. I, we don't spend money on much of anything. My husband and I like to spend money on food. And that's what we do. And it makes our sense. excitement. Mm. You wow. had mentioned also in your memo to me, which I had like kind of a, uh, a kindrance to that once you became around the ages of 13, 14, 15, 16, right around there, you were able to kind of get a job or job so that you could then buy snacks, buy your own food. You had a little bit of control, right? With some of that stuff. And at that same time, you became kind of, uh, so you get this freedom, right? Like, oh, I can give myself some food. But then at the same time, this duality of being aware of your body more for the first time uh, because of the cultural shifts of being a young lady, of coming into junior high and high school. And it's about the time you also read the book Dancing on My Grave by Gelsey Kirkland. Mm-hmm. <laughs> now, I also read this book Dancing on My Grave by Gelsey Kirkland when I was, I want to say, a freshman or a sophomore in... No, actually, it might have been in junior high, eighth grade, maybe seventh or eighth grade. And um, I did a report on that book. And it was like you were supposed to, I don't know, like give a thesis, like prove your thesis or something, prove your prove your theory um, in this report. And my theory was that Balanchine gave Gelsey Kirkland an eating disorder. And the the craziest thing and looking back at that is like okay so wow I was already in some of my behavior but completely unconscious to it writing a report on how this woman has come into this eating disorder it was like the calls coming from inside the house it's like the it, it was like I had been bitten by zombies and I was writing a report on how people got bitten by zombies but like not knowing that I'm a zombie um but I love that you brought that up because I forgot that entire section about how dysfunctional that book is, but that I couldn't stay away from it because it really spoke to me on a deep level. And it's hard because some of these things that we're talking about, we don't want to talk about because it could lead people to those things, but they're drawn to them for a reason because it's already in them. And so I, I don't <laughs> Sorry, know. I'm laughing. I know. It's so, it's, it's so just, it, you know, because there's, there's uh, when Kim, perfect example, Kim Hale talked about, you know, going to see this, uh, see, she watched a, a movie that kind of triggered her into wanting to look a certain way and want to wear those types of things. And that's when she got really serious about this, you know, uh, her, her disorder. And it's like, 
I, I, you know, I'd hate to guide people to these things that the, in the rare circumstance that they might take them on as their own behavior. But at the same time, like there, I I was going to find it. I was going to find it because it spoke to me. So you want to laugh? <laughs> I, I, yeah, I mean, it's just like, tell me about it. Okay, this is what's so, is this, what would be the phrase for this morbidly curious? I don't know, but um, that dark. whole, that just no, but dark. no, you're going to, you're going to, you're probably going to laugh and go, this is even more insane that that whole time, the whole, the whole parallels with Gelsey Kirkland, you, me, Kim, that book made me feel like a fraud. <laughs> Let me explain this. Okay, so that same time was, remember when I mentioned about the vending machine and the expensive apples? Yes. So basically, I got my little job and I had some money, so I no longer was using those meal tickets. I was just giving Mm -hmm. them away to the kids who used to beat me up. And um, I would go get my Diet Pepsi and, oh, this is the thing, gum. All the girls would chew gum because it helped save off their appetite, which was like, oh, cool, I can chew gum because now I won't feel hungry. Because by then, I really was feeling hungry. Did you ever start smoking? Because no, that was another no. trick of the trade. No, uh, my lungs were so bad because I had bronchitis and sinus oh, infections. Right. And it goes back to the whole nutrition thing. Because once I started eating well after leaving my mom's house, because a whole other story, my bronchitis and upper respiratory issues went away because I was able to mm. eat different food. But anyway, mm. so getting the diet pepsi and the mm-hmm. apple with all the cute little cheerleader girls and my little gum and the thing was to put your gum on the side of your can and carry it around at school all day was the cool thing to do and and so the funny thing is, is that you know i was dancing i was going to ballet i had this cute little figure and i was i looked great i had the most gorgeous arabesque which again when i grew up and actually had muscle and some meat my arabesque didn't look quite as good because there was some flesh in the way mm-hmm. but anyway during that time, the Gelsey Kirkland stuff and Susan Farrell and all this, everybody was like, God, you you have such discipline. You you really got the best figure. Da, da, da. I'm thinking, I'm a fucking fraud. Mm. You know, I'm not starving deliberately. I'm just saving money so I can have food. You know, like I didn't have money for food except when I was, it was just so funny because I actually, how sad that I thought I was a fraud mm-hmm. in the world of ballet because I wasn't deliberately starving myself. Yes, you, you know, to be that thin. You, you didn't earn it. <laughs> right. That's what I felt like. I didn't earn the that ballet body. I wasn't working really hard to not eat. You know, I was already, you know, five, six years into learning how to not be hungry because we didn't have food yeah. from, you know, second to, you know, sixth grade. You didn't starve for it. You were starving. <laughs> yes. <laughs> it was like against my will, I was hungry. Yeah. Yeah. Which, and again, our family doesn't know this stuff, you know? Like, I didn't want to be a burden because always hearing... You know, we don't have money for food. You kids are eating us out of house and home. Always hearing that type of language. Mm. And I knew my brother, he was playing all these sports. He got, he ate all he was. And again, girls hearing all the family, the women, the lady, oh, you know, you know, we're you know, so petite, so tiny. It's always so good to look this way that I was like, I, it was good to just be small. So I was lucky. And I didn't, I was good at not eating. Mm-hmm. And it was, I just didn't want to be a problem. I didn't want to be a burden, but it was great for ballet. Yeah. Yeah, And it was great for ballet. And I was like, cool. No one knows that we don't have that much money. Mm -hmm. I just a really good, you know, dieter to be a dancer. Like, oh God. (laughs) Yeah. You said, you had said to me that you had managed how to be hungry, how to be tired, you know, how to, how to deal with fatigue, how to deal Mm -hmm. with weakness, how to deal with foggy headedness. 
Oh, that was on scholarship. I realized that then, but right, right before before we leave this age range, the 14, 15. Yes. I had just told my dear dancer friend at my brother's celebration of life. Like again, your podcast literally has helped me just open my big old mouth and just finally air out some dirty laundry because you know what? I think it's important that people realize that there's people right under the radar going through some crap, especially when they're young. Mm-hmm. Um, I told my dear friend and her mom, I said, you know, I just want to thank you so much. If it weren't for you, I wouldn't have had ballet because they used to, they used to see me walking mm-hmm. to ballet at night as, and home as a little kid. So they started to pick me up. Mm-hmm. And then I started going to their house for, for sleepovers and I'd get to their house and eat everything. And I said to her mom, I go, you know why we ate, I ate everything when I showed up at your house? Like you had the best appetite, but you were so tiny. We always wanted to feed you. And I'm like, yeah, because we were starving. Mm. And then she got so heartbroken. She's like, I'm so sorry, Melissa. I never knew. I wish I would have known. I should have been a better, you know, parent. I should have seen this. And I said, honestly, if, if, if I knew you knew, I probably never would have gone back to your house again because I would have been so embarrassed. Right. And it just right. broke her heart. But mm. it's like, yeah, we, I couldn't wait to go to their house on the weekends. And then, I, you know, we talked about this the last few weeks. And it's like, here I am in my 50s. Mm-hmm. finally sharing these secrets with dear friends right? who, you know, and then they, it was so funny because some other friends were like, oh my God, I wish I would have known. I would have given you all my food because I didn't want it. And it's like, right. you know, it's just, it's really wild. So yeah. And then come to scholarship. Yeah. Oof. <laughs> right. Because you're, you know, it's hard to keep up your energy requirements on that type of a schedule to begin with. And that's if you have access. And that's if you're not dealing with some kind of other mental, you know, situation. But I related to you saying you had learned how to manage, how to be hungry, how to, you know, how to be fatigued, how to be weak, how to be foggy headed, how to, you know, how that affected your inability to pick up choreography. I relate to that. I, it wasn't in until recovery that I realized like something very weird happened for me in recovery is I had starved myself so successfully for so many long periods of time that um, I didn't get the hunger cues quite as normal or I would be able to get past them. So I would endure them and then they would go away. And I didn't get those typical things that I now get in recovery. So if I haven't eaten for quite a few hours, I'm going to start to get a headache. I'm going to start to feel lightheaded. I'm going to start to have an attitude problem. I'm going to feel it in my stomach. I'm going to start to feel nauseous. I'm going to feel the acid in my stomach. All those things are now in recovery. None of those things I experienced when I was adequately starving myself because I had moved past them. I had like literally pushed past them. Now, was I well-functioning? Probably not. Uh, was I a joy to be around? And Probably not. Did I not have issues probably picking up choreography? It probably contributed to that. Like all of that makes so much sense. Like mm-hmm. it is, I don't know what the opposite would be because I didn't experience it, but I can't imagine it's great judging by now how I function with or without. Wow. <laughs> oh. um, I think I had told you in my message that um, it wasn't until just recently realizing, wow, I wasn't a terrible dancer when I was a young dancer on scholarship. I was starving. Because like I said, I, I really couldn't pick up choreography. And I'm like, what? And then I realized, well, I wasn't eating. I Because way more wild things. My mom had just died. You know, we had just re- reconciled. I'd been on my own since I was 17. 
no help from anybody, my own apartment, no roommates. So, you know, I just knew what that was like to, again, scrape, scrape, scrape. I get on scholarship at Tremaine, which was incredible. I had this old 72, 73 Volvo that took some gas to get from Glendale to North Hollywood. Mm -hmm. And I had rent to pay. Mm -hmm. And so I was like, okay, I need to eat. Like, I didn't realize how much gas cost to get that far every day, you know, back Mm -hmm. and forth. And so that's why I stayed at the studio all day because I couldn't afford to drive back and forth during the breaks during the day. Mm. And so I'd get my one little thing of trail mix from the 7-Eleven on the corner that's still there. And I'd go to the Ralph's to get the apple because the Ralph's was super cheap for the apples, Mm -hmm. you know, on the way. And I would make this last forever, the whole entire eight-hour day. And um, hindsight, I'm like, wow, I always was very emotional mood swings. When you're malnourished, you're going to have some blood sugar issues. Your Mm -hmm. brain chemistry is going to get compromised and you're probably going to be a train wreck. Mm -hmm. That's why I also didn't like to drink when I'd be out with everybody because first of all, I didn't want to spend money on drinking. Mm -hmm. I wanted to eat. But if I drank, I was affected by it so fast that I would get psycho. And I'm thinking, oh, wow, if you're not eating, you're going to go nuts. Couldn't pick up choreography to save my life by the end of the day. The night classes were the hardest to do. Because I couldn't, mm-hmm. you know, do anything. And it was like, I would never have told anybody that I didn't have money for food. Mm-hmm. It was, it was, I would have been more proud to say, hi, I'm starving myself to death to look good than to say, I can't afford food. And same. It's, it's so and, weird. And I didn't go through the same amount of compound shame that you did growing up. But in my 20s on scholarship, if I didn't have money for food or an unexpected expense took away part of my grocery or all of my grocery money, I was not going to tell anybody. Of course not. Like the pride that comes with that. And like, there's no, and, and there were so many people that would have given me food and not judged me for it, but I couldn't do it. I just couldn't do it. I couldn't do it at all. Um, you had, um, you, you just mentioned about, uh, you know, how much alcohol can take its toll when you're not eating you know, people with eating disorders and alcoholism, that is a very, very common duality. And it is um, also a very dangerous one. So there are a lot of people who have eating disorders that are also alcoholics or alcoholics that have eating disorders. And uh, it is an, an a particularly toxic mix. Oh it is God. very, very dangerous. Um, and I definitely reaped the benefits of being able to drink on an empty stomach and Ooh, I can't. save money. <laughs> oh, save see, that money. would make, I, I would get way too sick. I, I, I couldn't do it. <laughs> like, yeah, it, it oh. definitely uh, was not great. That was not great. It was not yeah. great for me. Because the days I, that I did, it was bad. I was like, oh, it was, ugh. I didn't. I know. And I love that you're, you're very healthy in your mind. You're like, that was terrible for me. And I'm like, oh, I remember the good days. Uh, (laughs) The good old days of just all of that, you know, because it's not good old days, but that was something I really liked, you know, was that, that whole, that whole day. I mean, as far as probably my favorite, my oldest numb out is the eating disorder, but my favorite one was drinking. Um, of all my, of all my, uh, 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 vices to pick from. Whoa. Whoa. I just know that like I used to be, it, you know, it's really thinking about that right now too, is that I realized this too at the, at my brother's celebration of life. Like I didn't like to drink really in places I didn't feel safe because this was during the days that people were mm. roofing people. And actually mm-hmm. I had been roofied mm-hmm. once at, at the conga room, but mm-hmm. luckily I was found by my friend before anything bad could happen. 
And after that, I just got really weird about drinking. But if I was in a very safe place with safe, safe people, I would drink a lot because I would feel safe. Mm-hmm. And it would just be embarrassing. Like if I was with my brother in San Diego when he lived down there, mm-hmm. I knew I didn't have to drive. I was staying over. And I had this way of getting very horribly drunk sometimes, mm-hmm. which was always so embarrassing. And the night of the celebration of life I did, but like growing up, I used to see people in our family drink to excess because I think they were doing the things like they would rather drink than eat because it wasn't proper for women to eat, Mm -hmm. which brings me back to a major thing that pissed me off about a really good meal I had at Hungry Cat after a dance class with Claude (laughs) because people comment on what we eat Mm -hmm. and that makes me so sick because I remember I had a long day with Claude. I just, I used to drive him back over the hill. You know, I was, you know, from Hamas to his house in Hollywood. And I had just gotten a really cool job. I had done a, a really cool gig, got a good grip of money. And so like on the way home, I stopped at a place called Hungry Cat. And all I wanted was, because I was tired, I was hungry. I danced all day. I took what? Hamas, Michael Owens, and, and Claude's all back to back. So I'm like, I'm going to get a burger. I'm going to get some clam chowder. I'm going to have a dark and stormy because mm-hmm. I had money. And I'm mm-hmm. sitting there and this, and I'm going to be rude, this fat old man, that sounds really mean, but I'm going to say it because what I'm saying about him was as rude as what he said to me, Right, is that I'm sitting there just about to like get into my burger and my clam chowder sitting there and he's, and I'm wearing this cute little half top and I'm wearing some jazz pants and I'm, and he's like, you keep eating and I'm like, you keep eating like that, you're not going to keep that girlish figure. And I was like, first of all, oh my I just looked at him and I'm like, I'm like and you're one to talk. And and he you just say like it out louder. In yes, your head. yes, you I was said pissed. Out loud? Oh, I did. Amazing. And he's like, he goes, oh, well, you got a salty attitude. <gasps> and I was, how dare I, you? How dare you not yeah, take and, his life advice? And I just looked at him and I was like, <laughs> seriously. And I just whatever. But it, it made me so mad that I could not enjoy my meal because I was I felt so good that day. And I mean, it's weird how food can really create these milestones or these yeah. markers. Because I felt so good about myself that day. Mm-hmm. I had a good day in Michael Owens' class, which was really hard, mm-hmm. you know, because I was always with those tall, beautiful you know rockette. Michael Owens. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. Those tall, beautiful rockette leg girls. And I hear I was short, wide, little Mexican girl. And which, of course, in hindsight, I was cute and tiny, <laughs> you know. But I felt so good that day. And how one person's comment about what I'm eating and what, you know, what I, how I look. And, mm-hmm. and and he was like this man with a pot belly sitting there in a bar. And it's like, ew. And he's like, well, I was just complimenting you because you look so cute. You don't want to ruin that. And he kept going yeah. about it. I'm like, stop. And I couldn't eat that meal. Ugh, mm. gross. Sorry. <laughs> I just brought up that tangent. Well, listen, <laughs> you're not alone in that. I My sister-in-law has told me no, numerous stories of people commenting on whatever she's got in the checkout line. Some guy commented to me about wearing a mask in Walmart in Minnesota. Like, you know, there there is a lot, there is a certain breed of person that just really feels like they need to uh, give other people life advice unsolicited. So uh, especially when it comes to food, that's particularly offensive. And let's learn from this podcast not to do that to anybody ever under any circumstance. And you know what grosses me out lately too? In some of these movies that are really cute, these like cutesy romancy movies, there's always a very skinny girl mm-hmm. eating all this food. And you always mm-hmm. hear men talking about, I really like a girl who can eat. Mm-hmm. And first of all, like anybody who eats that much all the time, who also they usually portray these girls as like, who like lay around and don't like to work out. Mm-hmm. And they're like skinnier than me. And it's like, what kind of a, a message is that giving to women that they, these girls have to be eating burgers and pretzels and cotton candy all the time on all these dates? And, you know, 
but like they are so skinny in these movies. It's like, mm-hmm. is this reality? Well, it's another, it's another, it's another double-edged sword for women, right? Be, uh, you know, be a Madonna but be a whore. Be eat like a a a three hundred pound man but be skinny, you know? Yeah, and they show always... the men. The men are never eating in those date scenes, right? Mm-hmm. And the day the guys are usually sloppy and floppy. And there were these skinny little girls eating burgers and pretzels, and the guys, they literally, the guy never eats. I never see the guy eat in these movies. Well, thank so God. So weird. I don't know if I want to watch men eat. <laughs> but it's really weird. It's like, I just noticed this. Again, the, your podcast is making me just notice a lot of weird things. I love it. I love all of the, all the highlighting. I think it's all worth discussing. <laughs> Melissa, Sorry, <laughs> it has been such a pleasure to have you on. I have one last question for Uh-oh. you. Uh-oh. Uh-oh, okay. <laughs> so I always say this in every episode. I'm not in the business of give it ad- giving advice or suggestion. But <laughs> do you have any advice or suggestion for anyone who might be experiencing food insecurity right now? Wow. Um, I'm definitely no expert on it because I'm just beginning to unpack it. So I don't really think I'm a very good person to give advice to anyone other than myself right now. And I don't even think I'd take it. Um I'm fortunate that I have the privilege to have access to um, insurance and um, licensed mental health care professionals. Not everybody is that lucky. Even if you're completely healthy or you believe you're completely healthy, if you have access to any type of um, mental health professional, get it before you need it. Go talk to someone about somebody in traffic who pissed you off. And if you have any concerns about how you're eating, if it's normal or not, what who's going to say it's normal? Reach out and talk about it because more than I'm talking about this, I could possibly be, you know, uh, on you know in in a, in a situation where I could possibly go down a destructive eating pattern if I wasn't aware and I didn't have people to talk about these things with. So my advice would be: be kind to yourself, be patient with yourself. And try not to harm yourself. And if you don't feel that you're able to support yourself in that way and to give yourself an emotional or physical hug or find someone you trust, and that's really a double-edged sword because I know for me, I wouldn't reach out and ask for help, let me tell you, Mm -hmm. because people have come to me and I'm seen as this person who has it all together. Everybody's just doing the best they can. Professionally, I can show up. I get myself prepared. But personally, my dearest, closest friends know when I've been a wreck. And I'm fortunate that I've been able to talk to them. But also talking to a stranger, I would say talk to a stranger. Honestly, Mm -hmm. talk to some random person on a park bench that you'll never see again. Because I didn't realize how much you and I crossed over. Mm -hmm. Hearing your podcast allowed me to have these conversations on back channels with other friends. And then they started to engage with me more. And we have been talking about these subjects. Here I am in my 50s, just barely unpacking and scratching the surface of things that did traumatize me. So there is no stigma or shame. I have no one to answer to anymore. Mm -hmm. Um, My husband's very supportive, thank God. My friends are very supportive. But you'd be surprised that once you start speaking things out loud, that it gives you a little bit more power. Say it with pride. Because sometimes when you go, oh, I might have, and you kind of look all timid about it. But if you say something with pride and go, hey, you know, I ate a bug today. People are like, you ate a bug. That sounds really cool. But if you say, 
oh, I did something really gross. I ate a bug. They'll believe that it was gross. Mm -hmm. But if you get like excited about it, engage with yourself first. You know, that would be the advice. Engage with yourself first. Listen to yourself first. Be kind to yourself. And then find people that you trust or a stranger that you know you'll never see again. <laughs> Talk it out loud, whatever. Um, I babbled to you quite a bit and it has been really empowering. And so thank you. Thank you, Jillian, for allowing well, me to share. Thank you. I will have no regrets with how stupid I sound listening to this because we didn't rehearse this. We didn't no. talk about it. No, and we didn't. This has been an authentic podcast. I cannot thank you enough for what you're doing. And um, now people will be like, wow, now I know why Melissa was such a train wreck and such a weirdo on scholarship because, man, I wasn't, when you said not that pleasant when you don't eat, mm -hmm. I was a weirdo on scholarship. I was a recluse. I was considered probably rude and weird. Well, I well you, to... you had mentioned that you didn't want to share your food, which no, makes I couldn't sense. share my food. So <laughs> you, right. And you were you were willing to be seen as rude rather than food insecure. Yeah, because like, I don't know if you ever held a bag of trail mix back in the days before people had to worry about germs. But if you were eating trail mix, people would literally reach and just stick their hands in it because dancers were family. Mm -hmm. You know, people are we're a bunch of hamsters in a habit trail that I would literally pull it away and probably look at people with God knows what kind of a look on my face. Like they'd like punched me or something. Mm -hmm. And they're like, damn, you don't have to be so rude about it. And I'd be like, and I wouldn't tell them. I'm like, dude, I'm hungry. Mm -hmm. But it's like, they're like, yeah, we all are hungry. But they didn't know. It's like, I couldn't afford to buy another thing of trail mix. Mm -hmm. And I wasn't going to ever ask somebody else for food mm -hmm. because I had to do that in high school when I had no place to live. And I was right. sleeping on people's couches in high school and trying to eat out of their fridges. That was embarrassing. So yeah, mm. I would have rather have seen been seen as a rude bitch than share my food because I needed it. So wow. <laughs> Wait, end this on a happier note. <laughs> yes. No, Melissa, I can't thank you enough. I think this perspective is super, super important. I know that it's a little off topic for people who might be solely into recovery of disordered eating, eating disorders and body dysmorphia. But I... I really think some of these stories are so, so worthy of being told. And there is more crossover than not. I think we all have much more in common than we don't. And I'm just so, so grateful that you would come on and talk about something that is still so new for you and takes so much gall, like gall and courage and boldness and vulnerability to um, expose. So thank you so much, Melissa. Thank you, Miss Jillian. Can I say one thing about the dance world, maybe? Yeah. Since I know you work a lot with young dancers, right? Yes. Mm -hmm. um, it's kind of interesting because people will say, oh, if you're finding, finding yourself in a food insecure situation as a young dancer, reach out and tell someone. Mm -hmm. Let me tell you, no one's going to reach out and tell someone. Mm -hmm. So it will be the responsibility of dance teachers, dance educators, choreographers, scholarship directors, you know, program leaders to not other people by saying, if you have food abundance and food scarcity, you get together and talk. It's like, create some healthy moments where like, they're just there. The food is there in a little basket, maybe a little thing of peanuts, a little clementine orange little basket. And make, if anybody needs a little pick me up, feel free to grab a thing, anybody. Mm -hmm. Because not saying if you're food insecure, because right. that others you and it makes you something, but because right. everybody could have maybe just forgot their lunch that day. Right. Right. And no one likes to ask for handouts and especially dancers, whether they have an eating disorder or money insecurity or anything. Mm -hmm. Dancers don't like to be a bother. No. They want to be the ones who are showing up and doing the best mm -hmm. and they don't want to make waves. So offering that if you are in a place of like owning a studio or something, maybe have some little healthy snacks mm -hmm. somewhere 
um, that are portable and easy and let people enjoy them, but don't other them. Okay, sorry. <laughs> no, that's a great idea. And I'm actually, my the wheels of my brain are turning. I'm trying to figure out how to do this um, in a way. Yes, I am going to take your advice. Melissa, thank you so much. I love you, Miss Jillian. Thank you. Melissa and I are far from identical in our experiences and situations. We are not the same age or ethnicity. We didn't grow up in the same state or culture, but we both know what it's like to be hungry. And although we both got there in different ways, we both at many points chose starving instead of feeling shame. The biggest difference between Melissa and I is that so many times she didn't get to choose when and how she starved, whereas I did, and that was a privilege, even though at the time I saw it as more of a right. I'm so humbled by Melissa's willingness to go public with such an intimate part of her life, and doing so with an abundance of grace. I'm sure she would agree her experiences of food insecurity could be summed up as great indignation. However, To me, Melissa and her story is the epitome and embodiment of dignity. I hope you found something for yourself that resonated in my conversation with Melissa today. If you're listening to this episode and you're realizing that you are more like Melissa or I than not, welcome. And I hope this helps you take a step in the direction of recovery and resources if you haven't already. You're not alone. Just a reminder for anyone who needs to hear it. You don't need to wait until you're sick enough to get help. In fact, you don't have to be sick at all, just a desire to feel a little better. If you're listening and right now you're struggling with an ED, disordered eating, or other behaviors, welcome. Know that whatever you're feeling, there are those among us that have probably felt it too. You're not alone. If you're listening because you have someone you love in your life that is suffering or is in recovery for an ED, welcome. You are also not alone. Even having an eating disorder myself, I have not reacted the best I could to others who were struggling before my own recovery. I've attached the do's and don'ts of how to deal with someone suffering in the show notes, as well as how to contact Melissa and myself, and various links for help and recovery when and if you're ready. If you've made it this far, Thank you so much for listening, and I hope you were able to find something relatable in today's episode. As I mentioned at the beginning of this podcast, this is also a social experiment to see if in telling my story, I can embolden listeners to share their stories. If you'd like me to read your recovery story on this topic, anonymous or otherwise, on the podcast, please email graymaybestories at gmail.com, G-R-E-Y-M-A-Y-B-E-S-T-O-R-I-E-S at gmail.com. Thank you to everyone who helped make this Gray Maybe podcast happen. Producer and editor, Roderick Barge. Cover photo by Jose Perez. Music, licensed by Pixabay. Special counsel, Jada Ellingham and Roderick Barge. Special shout out to supporter, Patty Olgan. If you'd like to support this podcast, please rate, share, comment, and subscribe. Until next time, bye for now. <laughs>